play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell, and every episode I interview a celebrity about what they would choose to eat for their last meal, and then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Augustine Burroughs, New York Times bestselling author of many books, including Running With Scissors, Dry, and Magical Thinking. Because you've written so many memoirs about so many personal things, is it weird when you walk into a room to do an interview or to do a book reading that everyone knows everything about you? (laughs) It's not as weird as you'd think. And it makes me feel like I'm totally comfortable asking incredibly personal questions to complete strangers, even if it's like incredibly rude and invasive and not at all my business. Do you want to ask me a rude, invasive question? I can't think of one, but when one comes to mind, I'll totally do it. Augustine has a new memoir out. It's called Lust and Wonder, and it's about two of his life's big love stories. And he tells us how he went from being an alcoholic advertising copywriter to a stark, sober, best-selling author. If you've read a bunch of his other memoirs like I have, it's actually a very satisfying update on his life. Also on the program, Augustine has a bit of an obsession with QVC and the Home Shopping Network. So I called up the queen of the cookware infomercials, Kathy Mitchell, the woman behind those dump cake cookbooks that we all like to snicker at. We tried a a meatloaf pan and they called it the dump loaf. And (laughs) that was the end of it right there. It's like you could go that far and (laughs) go further. (laughs) So the dump loaf is not with us today. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Plus the history of Brunswick stew, a Southern dish so good it's worth fighting over. We've had a friendly and somewhat insulting rivalry between Brunswick County, Virginia and Brunswick, Georgia for years now. Augustine Burroughs didn't have your shiny, white picket fence, Kool-Aid mustache suburban childhood. If you read his book, Running With Scissors, or saw the film based on the book, you know... My mother was mentally ill and my father was this sociopathic, alcoholic philosophy professor and they couldn't raise me. So my mother, who was insane, gave me away to her lunatic psychiatrist and I lived in his sort of makeshift... um, lunatic asylum house with biological family members and long-term psychiatric patients. If you read his book Dry, you know that Augustine was an alcoholic who drank so much that I felt physically sick to my stomach while reading his book. But in his new memoir, Lust and Wonder, he talks about the day he stopped drinking. It was weird because I never had written anything except ads. And ad advertising writing to me was more like, it's more like a puzzle solving. It was never really about the writing. In fact, most of the ads I did I tried to have as few words as possible. I didn't write. I wrote as a kid in my journal, but it had been years and years and years. And so one day, you know, here I am. I'd, I'd gone through rehab, got sober, and then relapsed in a really big way when the person closest to me died. And I was um, really, really doing poorly with my drinking. I mean, I was, you know, sort of hallucinating spiders on the ceiling and having palpitations in my heart. And one morning I woke up and I just started writing something out of the blue that made me laugh. It was about a home shopping channel and their crazy characters. And I just kept going. I kept writing because it was like, where is this coming from? I didn't have this idea. It was like, it just seemed to me, it felt like these characters were coming. I was channeling them. I mean, that sounds so cliche and spooky, but that's exactly what it was like. I had no idea what was going to happen from one page to the next. I could not stop writing. 
and boom, like in seven days I'd finished a book. I mean, that was, it was like a weird explosion out of me. And I also never drank again. You know, I stopped drinking after like the fourth day because the drinking was getting in the way all of a sudden. Um, and I wasn't reaching that sort of place where I would always reach when I drank that oblivion, that sort of zone. I couldn't get to it. I was so distracted and, and alarmed and fascinated by this writing. I couldn't stop thinking about the characters. So the drinking just went away because I just didn't have time for it. I never expected I would get sober again. I had already done that and failed. So I just figured I would always drink, but it just happened that I didn't pick up a drink and it's been, you know, 20 years. That book that he talks about writing became his first published book, a novel called Cellavision. What do you think it was that you were getting from the writing that you were able to replace the drinking with? You know what I think it is, is because when I drank, the one thing about my alcoholism is that I never fooled myself. I never told myself, well, I can just have one. I just want to have one. I never wanted to have just one. I always wanted to have enough so that I could get into a a state of real oblivion where I didn't care about any of the problems in my life. And one of the things I remember doing when I lived in the city was I would always cross the street without ever looking either way. I would just sort of sail across. So it was very it was very reckless but oblivious, living in a cocoon of oblivion. It was that psychological state that I wanted, absolutely um, out of touch with reality, no, no inhibitions. And writing, you know, actually gave me that in a way. It was so deeply consuming and interesting and compa- it was, the world on the page, you know, on, on in my head then, and then on the page was much more real and fragrant and colorful and vibrant and intense and interesting than the actual brick and mortar world outside. It just, I felt like it was the place I'd been trying to reach with drinking all along. Hmm. So I was very lucky because I do think now um, that I've been sober for so long and it hasn't been a struggle, I mean, ever, not for a day. I think that the reason it's not been a struggle is because I did replace it with something that I loved even more. And that's something that's not really emphasized in recovery programs. This is it's the challenge is going to be finding a passion, something that you absolutely love more than whatever substance you're abusing or more than whatever, you know, your addiction, your point of addiction is you've got to find something that you that engages you and that's not going to hurt you. Yeah, you're lucky that you, you found know, it. Totally lucky. Okay, we're going to get to the question that is the topic of this show, which is, okay. what is your last meal? What would your last meal be? So I thought about that because I knew that would be the question of this show, but I didn't know it until yesterday. It's a hard question. I and think. But I actually had a really quick answer for some reason. It's something that my grandmother... Okay, so my whole family is from the South. I'm the only Yankee in the family in all generations. I mean, hmm. It's like an old Southern... Mayflower family from Georgia. So I always have loved Brunswick stew, my grandmother's Brunswick stew. And when she died, um, I inherited her cookbooks. So she had several cookbooks. She had one that was like um, from 1945 is when she started. It was just a blank diary. And she would have her own recipes written out in the pages of this blank diary. And she would also um, cut recipes out from the, you know, Atlantic Constitution Journal or whatever and paste them in. And it went, you know, over years and years and years. So Brunswick stew is sort of like, it's sort of like a chili. It's a stew. It's like a meat, vegetable, tomato-based stew. Okay. But it's very, very thick and it has a very, very distinct flavor. And that's been the tricky thing is um, finding that flavor because because in, in her diary cookbook, 
half of the recipe is gone, and it's the half that would have had the seasoning. Oh no! I know. It got ripped out. It's just it's it's it was unglued. She had what was two handwritten single pages, and the one on the right is gone. Oh no! And that's the one that had the. So I've spent years experimenting with different recipes and trying to make stuff up and read and I think I've I've kind of got it and the reason I kind of have it is because there's another cookbook that I inherited and there are two recipes for Brunswick Stewart actually maybe three in the southern cookbook and one of them kind of leads me in the right direction with my grandmother's I think because my grandmother's original recipe for Brunswick stew the one that I mentioned before that has like half the ingredients missing I can already tell, looking at the half that remain, that this wasn't the Brunswick stew that I knew and grew up with. I think that her own recipe evolved over the years. Hmm. So whatever she started with in 1943, she later found something else that worked better. And part of the secret to it, so it's like smoked meat, beef, pork, or chicken, or all three. Would she self-smoke? She would self-smoke. She had a huge garden, so it would be very, very big, huge, fresh, beautiful tomatoes, you know, ungenetically modified, great. And white corn, okra, again, all really, really beautiful and fresh. So this sounds like a summer dish. It, You know what it is? It's kind Which of, is a, it's a very summer a dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. And then a barbecue sauce. Huh. And it was always her own barbecue sauce. She would make her barbecue sauce. I always make homemade barbecue sauce. And this is from a, uh, my grandmother's. 1923 Southern cookbook. And it's basically butter, apple vinegar, water, dry mustard powder, and then minced onion, and then some Worcestershire sauce, tomato ketchup, chili sauce, lemon juice, uh, whole lemon, like rind, garlic, and a little bit of sugar. But you could also use like um, maple syrup if you don't want to use sugar. And I like the grade B maple syrup, which is the darker one. And then it's just about cooking that, simmering that until it is very, very shiny. It it takes on a beautiful, glossy sheen. And I find that that's really where the trick of it comes in. It also requires chicken stock, which you've got to make. Like I have to make it from scratch. So you've got to make, first you have to get really good at making chicken stock. And then you got to get really good at making barbecue sauce. And I think that that's the secret to it of, Achieving that flavor that I remember from childhood is and cooking the whole stew for hours and hours and hours. You cook it like all day. And it's amazing. It's a very, there's not much liquid in it. And at the end of the day, at the end of the meal, it's very thick. That sounds really hard to recreate because of what you're saying. First of all, that all of her vegetables were homegrown. I know. I know. So that has like a special thing. And then smoked meat besides ham is right. really hard to find. I never see it in the store, smoked chicken or smoked beef. Well, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't do it like smoked smoked. So what you would do is you could do it on your Weber, on your little grill with, you know, hickory chips. Okay. So you could do that. Ghetto smoke it. Yeah, exactly. And then just like you could even put it in your instant pot when you're done. And are you in the cult of the instant pot? Totally People are in the so cult into of that it. thing. I'm obsessed <laughs> with it. Augustine says he hasn't eaten his grandmother's Brunswick stew since the 1980s, but he's been working on recreating the recipe for years and years. And he eats it with saltine crackers. Your books make it pretty clear that you don't have a great relationship with your family. No. But yet this dish is something that is significant to you that's connected with your grandma. I love my dead granny. Oh, good. I so love she dead was granny. a good one. Yeah, dead granny was great. She had a, like a mink bathrobe and slept with a little pearl-handled gun under her pillow. <laughs> Are you serious? Totally. Did she uh, glue the pearls on herself? No. Okay. Uh-uh. This wasn't she like was an great. early, um, what's that? What do you call it? Bedazzling. Bedazzling. No, 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 no. 
Okay. It was like a mother of pearl handle. It was like a lady gun, a southern lady gun. <laughs> what is her name and what's her Carolyn. story? Carolyn. So she married um, her husband, my grandfather, when they were like 15. They were very young. They had a child, my father, but the grandparents felt like, you know, these two kids need to be kids. So my father was raised by his grandparents while my grandmother and her husband sort of had fun being 15 and 16 and 17 and whatever. And, you know, they, um, they lived on a big, huge sort of plantation house down in Lawrenceville, which had these big, huge, you know, Corinthian columns. It's a big, big ass house. So they had lots of land. They had lots of peacocks wandering around. I used to go love, loved walking around in their huge gardens of vegetables and sunflowers and trying to not step on rattlesnakes. And they had peacocks running around in the yard. It was fun. And she was very, um, a little bit eccentric, I think, a little bit eccentric, but um, she loved cooking. She loved mm. cooking. So She must have been a young granny if she, she was had a young granny. dad at 15. So totally young granny. She was very glamorous. She had blonde hair. She had a picture, a painting of herself over the fireplace <laughs> in her blonde hair and her pearls. I mean, it's just. That's so amazing. She was, she's kind of tacky, you know. So you have a love that you talk about in uh, Lesson Wonder for jewelry. Right. Is that where it comes from? Totally. That's where it comes from because she was obsessed with jewelry and especially jade. So I am too. I totally inherited it. And Which is uh, so funny because you don't look like a dude who'd be into right? fine jewelry. I know I, know I don't at all. You're not I draped don't. in it right now. No, I'm not. But I totally am. Like as soon as I leave here, I'm going to have to go like online and look at, you know, filigree opal rings. I just want to paint a picture here. Augustine Burroughs, a man who loves jewelry, actually is a dude in a trucker hat. He was wearing a brown leather jacket. He's wearing jeans. He has a very scruffy beard and a sweet mustache, and he's scouring the internet for opals. That's who Augustine Burroughs is. And you'll have a minute to imagine all that while we take a quick break. Ta-ta! If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Augustine Burroughs chose Brunswick stew for his last meal a thick smoked meat stew with okra and tomatoes and a homemade barbecue sauce. And I had never heard of this dish before, so I ignorantly thought that it would be hard to track down. But I was dead wrong. If you Google Brunswick stew, a million things come up, and I realize it's just because I'm not from the South. I don't know what this dish is. As for where Brunswick stew comes from, the history, this is up for debate. There is a huge, huge rivalry between Brunswick County, Virginia and Brunswick, Georgia. Both places say they invented it. 
first, I called Virginia. Hello. Hey, John, it's Rachel Bell. All right, hold on. I'm walking in my garage right now. Cool. Um, let's see. Keep talking. Tell me your name and your title. I don't have a title. <laughs> I'm just John Clary, and I'm a stew master. John Clary learned to make Brunswick stew in 1972. He learned from firefighters at the fire station he still volunteers at today. And John Clary's not making a little pot at home for his wife and kids. He usually cooks it in huge cauldrons, 1,200-quart batches. And he feeds this to people at fundraising events, anywhere from the Kiwanis Club to Virginia Tech. The stew is classically stirred with these huge paddles, almost like a boat oar. And when you have your own oar, all your own equipment, and a handle on the recipe, only then can you be a true stew master. So getting to the history, obviously John claims that Brunswick County, Virginia invented the dish. The original home of Brunswick stew is Brunswick County, Virginia, and that's documented in 1828 on the banks of the Nottoway River. Uh, and basically the first stew was venison and squirrel, or whatever meat he had left over from the week of hunting. And he put it all in one pot and added a few vegetables to it. In 1988, the General Assembly of Virginia proclaimed on February the 22nd of 88 that Brunswick County, Virginia was the original home of Brunswick stew. Of course, Brunswick, Georgia, the city, which is in Glen County, Georgia, uh, they said they had the right to it, but theirs was in 1890. So we were well documented prior to theirs. All right, so John says that Virginia invented Brunswick stew in 1828. What date does Georgia claim? Well, I called up the Brunswick, Georgia Chamber of Commerce and was connected with former mayor and Brunswick stew cheerleader Brian Thompson. The actual date seems to fluctuate. Uh, It fluctuates whenever Brunswick County, Virginia can find a date that the stew originated there. We dig around and we find a date that's actually earlier than that. So the last count, it was back in the late 1700s when Brunswick was laid out. Every now and then, the rivalry extends beyond Virginia and Georgia. We've also had little dust-ups with like Brunswick, Ohio and Brunswick, New Jersey, that occasionally they get a wild hair and they suddenly think that, you know, that Brunswick stew originated in their community, which is just absolutely absurd. Uh, But Brunswick County, Virginia and Brunswick, Georgia, have, have we've we've been dueling over this for decades now. I mean, it goes back probably 50 years or more. I mean, it's gotten to the point to where at one point we had our state legislature here issued a proclamation recognizing Brunswick, Georgia as the birthplace of Brunswick stew. Then, of course, Virginia did the same thing. They had their legislature do the same thing. Both Georgia and Virginia hold annual stewbillies, which brings me so much joy. And at these stewbillies, stewmasters compete for the title of, I don't know, Brunswick Stewmaster. And one year, the folks from Georgia went down to Brunswick County, Virginia to compete. But the only problem was the judging wasn't fair. Two of the judges were from Virginia, and only one was from Georgia. The trophy was stolen from us. It was stolen. Two votes from Virginia, one from Georgia. So we decided, well, if they're going to steal it from us, we're going to steal it from them. So as we're leaving, we're saying our goodbyes. I'm in the car with the mayor. And we had set it up with one of our stew masters that as we drove by, he was to rush the table where the trophy was displayed, throw it to another guy who would shove it into the car, and then we would take off, which is exactly what happened. And we were able to get across the state line and away from uh, uh, the Virginia police into North Carolina. We actually brought it back to Brunswick. We had our photos taken with it above our heads. Actually, the thing went kind of viral. 
uh, before things went viral, but it was appearing in newspapers all up and down the East Coast. Every heading was the same. They look like winners, but... Uh, but we kept it for a while. We actually paraded it. We had our annual Christmas parade, and then we eventually returned it to Virginia because they kept whining about it. Is this a male-dominated stew sport? I haven't heard talk of a lady stew master yet. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much this guy thing. You know, guys, guys just want to have stew, I think is how Cindy Lauper's original lyrics went. So the ingredients that go into these stews are decidedly different, but the method is pretty much the same. Whether you're in Virginia or Georgia, you're getting up at three in the morning to start preparing the stew, and they both have to cook down for about six to eight hours. I was also told that there is a fair amount of whiskey drinking that starts around four or five in the morning. As far as the difference in ingredients, it's the Georgia Brunswick stew that includes the barbecue sauce and can use multiple smoked meats like chicken and beef. The Virginia version is much milder and simpler and only uses chicken. But back in the day, they both used meats like squirrel. And the way the folks in Georgia and Virginia choose to serve the stew is also different. How do you serve the stew? What do you serve it with? Normally cornbread or just white bread, loaf bread. Some people add crackers, you know, whatever you want to eat it with. Our stew can be a meal on itself. In Georgia, it's usually an add-on dish like a side. Uh, They'll do a little saltine crackers, not oyster crackers. We're not that fancy. It's not an oyster cracker. It's a saltine. And it has to be a premium saltine also. Is there any other uh, kind? No, there are no other kinds. It's premium. I was Um, told by the Virginia people that they eat theirs as a meal, but Georgians eat yours as a side dish at a barbecue restaurant. Is that true? uh, It is uh, served as a side dish in a barbecue restaurant because we're more creative than Brunswick (laughs) County, Virginia. Um, And we understand that one can consume more than one item at a meal. You're not so simple is what you're saying. Exactly. Like we talked about earlier, Brunswick stew seems to most often be prepared by middle-aged men. So John Clancy has made it his mission to try and mentor young stew masters to try to keep this tradition alive. The younger generation is hard for them to do this. I don't know because of the time that it takes, the dollars that it takes for the equipment, or just them not being willing to do it. It's not easy. You know, it's a long day. We'll start at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to have it ready by lunch. You know, it seems to me the young people today just don't have enough time to get involved in it or want to fool with it. They'd rather sit there with their iPads, I guess, and, and play and go to the store and buy something to eat. Kids today, they don't appreciate stew. Uh, well, they don't appreciate work, a lot of them. <laughs> and, but, yeah, they like to eat it, but they just don't want to cook it. We're such a fast food world today. We can go to the store and pick up anything we want and don't have to prepare it. We have to take a break. So take a minute. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Leave us a review. You have a little bit of time. And when you're done, I'll introduce you to a woman you may not know by name, but you definitely know by sight. The queen of the cooking infomercials, Kathy Mitchell. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes.
Augustine Burroughs' first book is called Cellivision, and it was inspired by the hours and hours and hours he spent late at night, drunk, watching QVC and the Home Shopping Network. What's the weirdest thing you've bought off QVC? The weirdest thing I bought was when I was actually drunk. It was like a massive, full-size, like 12-foot by 15-foot rug pads. Uh-huh. And I was just so compelled by the presentation that I bought them. I bought two. I was living in a studio apartment. The whole place wasn't... I didn't have any rugs, and I, I have no idea why I did that. It was insane. What did you do with them? I never, I never opened my door when they came to deliver them. I just oh. hid. <laughs> and then when they... And when they left the little tag, I never, ever picked it up. So I just cowered away. When it comes to food infomercials, one star shines brighter than the rest. Hi, this is Kathy Mitchell. I'm the, (laughs) I don't know what I am. You may not know her name, but I guarantee you know this woman. Hi, welcome to Cooking with Kathy. I'm Kathy Mitchell. Now you've probably seen me in a lot of kitchens, but today we're at my house in my actual kitchen and we're going to learn how to use one of the most unique kitchen products I've ever found, Micro Crisp. This is going to change the way you cook with your microwave forever. Kathy looks pretty much like everyone's Midwestern mom. Go ahead and Google her. She's short. She's a little bit round. She has the short red curly hair and perfectly manicured fingers. Perfect for pointing things out on TV infomercials. And Kathy has hawked more than 20 products on TV. Hi, Kathy Mitchell here with my new red copper square dance pan. This is not your grandmother's old griddle. Kathy, how are you? Good to see you. Great to see you too. I love my Express 101. I think you're going to love it even more now because look what we can do. Now notice this latch. When I close it down, it locks in place. And that's what seals the sandwiches at the edges and cuts them as they cook. Kathy has written eight cookbooks, including Dump Cakes. We are back in today's kitchen. And boy, does this sound like a treat. Dump Dump Cake. cake. It was actually very popular back in the 50s. It's exactly what it sounds. You take some cake mix, a couple other ingredients that you already have, and you dump it in a pan. pan. Right, Kathy Mitchell? Yes, I am. She is here. She's the author of what else? Dump Cakes. (laughs) Dump Dinners. And here to show us how to make a quick and convenient Valentine's Day meal is author of the new cookbook, Quick and Easy Dump Dinners. (laughs) And HSN star, Kathy Mitchell. And Dump Soups. You have to admit that you know that people do snicker a little bit at the name. Do you not know that? Oh, yes, I know that. And don't you think that's probably part of the reason it's successful? Yes, I do. And I was wondering if that was something that nobody noticed. Oh, believe me, everybody noticed. That relieves me. Sometimes you take those things that that prove to be successful and you take them just a little too far. We tried a a meatloaf pan and they called it the dump loaf. And that that was the end of it right there. It's like you could go that far and no further. So the dump loaf is not with us today. No, it's not. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I just cringed when I heard the name. It's just sometimes when they, they want to name things, it's just like, I go, oh, come on, really? So how did you get into this? You have this very interesting, very specific celebrity that you do these infomercials and you're a spokesperson for all these kitchen items. Where did you get your start? I started in the fairs, home shows, demonstrating products at the fairs, you know, the people up on the box with the microphone that gather a big crowd around them, and suddenly you are, you own a kitchen appliance you never had any thought you were going to buy before that. The vacuum that can suck up anything. That's exactly right. I, I just, I think my, really believe it's because I'm kind of every woman. I shop at Walmart and Kmart, and the, I shop at the marts, you know. I 
make real simple, easy food. I'm not a, I'm not a chef. I'm just a cook. I, I'm always looking for shortcuts. And people seem to believe when I say something is good or something works. You know, I just have a believability. And I've kept that because I just don't sell something that doesn't work. Kathy's very first infomercial was for the Snackmaster, something that I picked up at the thrift store many years ago. It's the little nonstick grilled cheese press machine. Well, it's a funny story. In, in 89, the, uh, the SEC released the half-hour infomercial format where you could, you could buy a half an hour of time. And, and so everybody was kind of scrambling. I think uh, Ron Popeil probably did the first one, but uh, I was one of the first three. The guy that owned the Snackmaster kind of said, hey, these TV commercial things are kind of interesting. Why don't we try one? And I knew the demonstration, and so I was elected. And we went down to a little studio in San Diego, rented it for five hours. By today's standards, it was kind of like, let's put on a show in the garage. Very simple camera angles, uh, no food stylist, no makeup lady. You know, I had to borrow a lipstick from the the secretary in the outside office's purse because I didn't have a good lipstick with me. And uh, just went through and basically did my fair demonstration but the funny story, because afterwards, the, the guy that owned the company said, you know, we never talked about paying you for, you know, your time here today. So he says, I'll give you $1,000 for your time here today, or I'll give you 50 cents for each machine we sell. But bear in mind, we not, might not sell any. So I took the 50 cents, and uh, we sold a million machines. You choose some pretty interesting recipes. I've been watching you for a long time. And the thing that I remember the most is that you use soda in recipes. Like you're making a cake with Dr. Pepper. You're putting Coke on like a marinade. Where did that come from? The, I believe the first one I did when I, was, when I was selling the turbo cooker, what it was was a machine that you cook the food on a rack and you put a liquid in the bottom and the steam helped with the cooking process. And I was making some cupcakes. And I was trying to think of what I could put in the bottom that would have anything to do with cupcakes. So I dumped in a can of cherry pie filling. But it was too thick to just turn on the fire and cook it for a half an hour. So I needed something to water it down. I didn't want to add water to it. So I I was drinking a cherry Coke. I just thought, well, hey, that'll work. And then I thought, well, heck, I use the rest of it as the liquid in the cake mix. So I made cherry cola cupcakes, and they were delicious and I couldn't believe how much the cupcakes rose. And then when you start looking at it and figure out why, I realized that the, uh, that the carbonation in the soda helps, helps the food to rise. And you can actually use, instead of putting in two eggs and oil and water, I can dump in an equal amount of soda, which is generally about 12 ounces. So once I discovered that, you know, then, wow, the world was my oyster. I use it in biscuit, with biscuit mix to make biscuits. They rise really nice and high and light. Plus, you can use it as a flavoring. If you put uh, orange soda in biscuit mix with some mandarin oranges, and it makes like an orange-flavored coffee cake. All of the products that Kathy sells have one thing in common. They aim to make cooking and cleaning easy. Everything is freakishly nonstick, can be cleaned with a single swipe of a sponge, and you can always make a meal in one pot. You know, I, I'm talking to people across the country. You know, you if you exclude the, the elite L.A. people and the elite New York people, all the rest of the country is just meat and potatoes, and <laughs> that's the kind of food I make. I, I should live in Nebraska or something because I, that's the kind of food that, that people eat, that real people eat, and I feel like a real person. They want meat, they want potatoes, they want a vegetable, they want to get it on the table quick, and they just want to be done with it. Nobody wants to spend an hour cleaning up 17 pans from making dinner, and nobody does. 
which is why half the world orders pizza, because they just don't feel like cooking dinner. Her recipes involve box cake mix, cans of soup and pie filling, pre-made pizza dough and biscuits, jars of tomato sauce, and pre-shredded cheese. All stuff that you would stock a bomb shelter with. People come over and they go, well, I'm coming here if the world ever ends because you've got so much food. Wow. But, but you know, when, you, when you're testing, you just never know what you're going to need. Is your cupboard just full of all of these products? Do you have a Chef-O-Matic Pro and a Press Quick and a Pasta Boat and an Express Platinum, a Hogwash Scrubber, a La Presse, Turbo Cooker, Fry Pro 2? Do you use all this stuff? Yes. As we get ready to wrap up this episode of Your Last Meal, we turn back to Augustine Burroughs, who has told us a lot about his past in many of the books that he's written. And from his most recent memoir, we kind of know what he's up to now. But what does the future hold? As somebody who's read your other books, it's cool to read this new one, Lust and Wonder, because it's kind of like, where has he been? You know, the VH1 story. Where is he now? Kind of thing. Because now, you know, you do learn that. I mean, I'm sure you do still have little problems like everybody does, but things turn out pretty good for you. Things totally turn out great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to read that. And it's like, and it's nice to have that little happy ending, but like now it's not nice. Because you know what I mean? It's like happy is not interesting. No. But that gives me the chance to work on fiction, which is what I've always loved anyway. That's what I was going to ask is, are you out of material to write another memoir? Well, no, there are other things too, but that's a whole different story. And that was Augustine Burroughs' last meal. Augustine has a brand new memoir out now. It's called Lust and Wonder. It's real good. I read it in about three days. It's a super page turner. So pick it up. Thanks to our team of Brunswick stew experts, stew master John Clary from Brunswick County, Virginia, and Brian Thompson, former mayor of Brunswick, Georgia. Thank you most of all for exposing me to the word stewbly. Thank you so much to Kathy Mitchell, the sweetest, most charming lady who can make a pizza in any nonstick piece of cookware. Kathy is currently on TV selling red copper pans. You can buy those at bulbhead.com. And as always, she's expanding her dump empire. Music is always by Prom Queen, and you have to listen to Prom Queen's music online. Not only does she have an amazing voice, but she plays a pink rhinestone guitar and has a sweet bouffant. This episode of Your Last Meal was produced by Aaron Mason and me. And if you have a second, make sure and leave us a review. It only takes a minute, and it means oh so much. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is Your Last Meal. Thank you.